This is Stephen Andrews, Managing Editor of the Journal of American History and Editor of the OEH Magazine of History. During the sesquicentennial years of the Civil War, the Organization of American Historians is committed to bringing the best current thinking on this complex era to a wide audience. We aim to explore the war from its beginning through its aftermath. As part of this goal, the OEH is pleased to offer a series of podcast conversations with distinguished historians. During 2013, we are focusing on turning points. With us today is Aaron Sheehan-Dean, the Eberly Family Professor of Civil War History at West Virginia University. He's the author of Why Confederates Fought, Family and Nation in Civil War Virginia, the Concise Historical Atlas of the U.S. Civil War, and the editor of several other books. He also served as a consulting editor for the April 2013 issue of the OH Magazine of History, entitled Civil War at 150, Turning Points. Thanks for joining us today, Aaron. Thanks for having me here. Well, I think, you know, one of the questions this issue was about turning points, and I think you know, it might help our discussion if we put on, you know, some of what do we traditionally or usually think of as turning points of the Civil War. Uh, what are those events? Well, I think certainly most people, and certainly within the popular narratives of the war, people would say that there's one major turning point, and that's the the July 1863 Northern victories at Gettysburg and Vicksburg. And those are um, regarded as a sort of tipping point after which Northern victory then becomes, in a sense, inevitable. Um, the it's It's a convenient point because it's kind of midway through the war. Uh, both victories are announced on July 4th. So if you're telling the story in the classroom, it's a very dramatic moment to then talk about the way in which Northerners are able to see in these twin victories a kind of divine providence and, you know, a confirmation of American nationalism. That's the major one that I think most people would identify. In in recent years, people have also paid much more attention to Abraham Lincoln's re-election in 1864. Uh, as late as August, that looked highly in doubt. Lincoln himself thought he wouldn't be reelected. And so if he had not been, the war would have looked very different after that. His reelection, though, ensures that the, the North will sort of stay the fight. And I think most people regard that, most historians at least, regard that as another one of these sort of pivot moments when the war could have gone in a different direction. So we have these kind of like macro political events that I think certainly do seem to be like these turning points, even though 1864 is so late in the war that I, I think you're right that that is a, the idea that everything could go different at that point. Is is that what we mean by a turning point? Is, uh, you know, the, this is the point where we now know a kind of a set outcome, but this was a place in which there was a turn either taken or not taken. Well, yeah, I think um... – Certainly that things would have been very different. Whether they would have gone in the opposite direction is much harder to say. I think, you know, with, with regard to Abraham Lincoln's election, you know, he's running against George McClellan, who was a famous Union general, but not a very competent one, and Lincoln had relieved him from command. And he, he wins the Democratic presidential nomination, which includes a pretty clear restraint on him to end the war as soon as possible, to basically sue for peace whether the Confederacy has independence or not, regardless of the status of slavery. And so if McClellan is, is elected, then the landscape, the political landscape in terms of negotiating and in terms of the military conflict do look, in fact, immediately different. And this is why, I mean, Lincoln's memo is a famous one and, in fact, gives us a glimpse of how the war would have been different. So in August a 23rd or so, Lincoln writes a memo, basically a note saying it looks at this point increasingly likely that the administration, this administration will not be reelected and that our 
my opponent will have been elected on a campaign pledge to stop the war as soon as possible. So it's incumbent upon me to end the war on the terms for which we began it as quickly as possible, that is, between his the, the election and his inauguration. And that would have meant at that point not just reunion but also emancipation. And so Lincoln, he puts that in an envelope, has his cabinet sign it as a sort of testament to the fact that he knows the policy will change radically once McClellan is reelected. He's now got five months because uh, inaugurations weren't until March in the mid-19th century. So he has five months left to finish the war the way it was being fought. But it is, uh, that is probably more of a, of a turn rather than a kind of about face. I mean, right. most people regard Gettysburg, if, if the North loses Gettysburg, the argument is that at that point, the war is effectively over, the European powers recognize the Confederacy, and then, yeah, the, the North American landscape is sort of dramatically different and, you know, irreversibly two separate nations. So I mean, it's a, what sounds interesting is that these turning points are, are the – you can also think of it as these are the point at which counterfactuals begin. That, yeah. You know, if you want to reason from counterfactuals or think about a counterfactual, the place where you would start a counterfactual often gives you an indication of where a possible turning point might be. It does. You know, you're right. And I mean, I, you know, we, we have to be careful with counterfactuals. Um, I mean, there are some sort of wild ones and uh, wildly speculative ones about the Civil War that are quite fun. Uh, Harry Turtledove's most famously novel sure, uh, sure. about, you know, the, the sort of time travel and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson get a case of AK-47s and win the war. And then the question is, what does the what does North America look like with a full confederacy? But but in the context of sort of the classroom, you can do. I think, you know, quite usefully kind of managed counterfactuals that force students to have a really keen appreciation for the political and social context of things. And then that understand the contingency and the dynamism. So what if that event had been different? And that, of course, then changes everything. We have to know what the things are. Right. Forcing students to have to master a certain amount of content to be able to reason from one event to think about the possible things that are in play. Right. And, and also to recognize then, of course, paths not taken, Sure, which, which I think earlier generations of historians, I mean, I think this is something that our generation is, is particularly keen to do. Previous generations were much more concerned with sort of accounting for the outcome that we got. How did we become us? And uh, current historians obviously need to do that. But I also think that, that there's been a kind of slow methodological turn, which encourages us to also really highlight the paths not taken so that that people understand there was no one path to get us here. There were multiple routes and history could have gone differently than it did. Sometimes those other paths look better in retrospect. Sometimes they look worse. But all of it helps inform our sense of then where we are now. Well, this idea of turning points, um, the examples that we've been talking about are kind of political and military. Does the idea of turning points, does it, does it work in you know, the social, the growing kind of, and, and been growing for a long time, the social and cultural histories of the Civil War? Do they also kind of identify turning points? Um, I think it's a harder fit. Um, I mean, partly because social and cultural history tends to operate you know, in a more subtle kind of evolutionary framework as opposed to, you know, an election, which gives you a very sharp break um, or a battle, which is a day or a couple of days. That being said, uh, so methodologically, I think it's harder to identify those. That being said, um, certainly the social history of the last 25 years, which has been the kind of dominant mode for civil war historians, has produced a sense that there are moments of crisis in social terms. I mean, the most famous one uh, on the Confederate side is 
the, the bread riots and the food riots that, that break out across the Confederacy in the spring of 1863. We've always known about the, the Richmond bread riot, which, which happens in early April, and it's a famous instance of kind of civilian protest against the nature, uh, the equality of suffering in the war. Uh, this is a riot that happens in downtown Richmond, uh, a kind of storm of mostly mothers and wives, um, poor and probably working class women who simply can't buy uh, flour and grain for their families break into government warehouses where where grain is being stockpiled for use for soldiers and also break into to private bakeries and facilities in the, in the streets and are sort of claiming their due um, famously they're they're confronted ultimately by Jefferson Davis who has to bring a phalanx of soldiers to the the Capitol Square and threaten to fire on the protesters unless they uh, unless they retreat. And so it's a kind of dramatic moment in which women who in the antebellum period had not had nearly so public a role in the political order, particularly kind of violent, and the riot, the riot is certainly violent around its edges, and that are confronted by the, the head of state for the whole nation who's threatening to open fire with, you know, their brothers and husbands and fathers on them. And the the kind of elite of Richmond try to write the riot off as a depraved women, uh, prostitutes and, um, sort of permanently unemployable people gone awry. And so they're, they're prosecuted as criminals, but it's, it's quite clear. There's a deep social problem in the Confederacy, um, around the hardship that's been created as a result of war, but also about the inequality as, as people see it. And so we now know, I mean, Stephanie McCurry's book, Confederate Reckoning, uh, details a number of these that happen around the country. There are some meat riots in Atlanta where women break into butcher shops and, and you know, they come in fully armed and exit with hundreds of pounds of meat um, and in other cities. And what happens as a result is the Confederate government has to really, from the local all the way up to the federal level, reorganize and in fact sort of initiate welfare policies that are quite remarkable, of course, for for an institution created to defend a very you know, conservative state rights kind of position on social policies, they're forced to then alter this and and start uh, accumulating stockpiles, not to give to soldiers, but to distribute to soldiers' wives, to families, particularly to, you know, soldiers who have died, so widows. And they have to do this in order to maintain a kind of secure home front. So there is, you know, the, the, the bread riots are certainly one of those social changes in the North Almost at the same uh, same time, just a couple of months later, in July of '63, there are the terrible uh, race riots. Uh, we call them draft riots. Sure, sure. That start in New York City, but it highlights how fractious the question of emancipation and the enlistment of black soldiers is in the North, and and forces not just the Lincoln administration but supporters of emancipation to really think more strategically about earning Northern support and popular support for emancipation. Um, I mean, that summer sees a number of important battles in which black soldiers behave valiantly, and that helps shift Northern attitudes. But it's a clear sign to Lincoln that just as in the South, the home front is not stable, and um, and that this is really kind of social opposition to the way these policies are, are organized, that emancipation presages a new labor landscape in Northern cities where black and white workers will be competing against one another, and it um, it unsettles many white Northerners. Uh, and so I think you, you can identify certainly crisis moments uh, in the, the social and cultural narratives. 
we should probably mention that uh, Stephanie has uh, Stephanie McCurry has an article about this in the magazine, and Shannon Bennett writes a little bit about the draft riots, and uh, you know Stanley Harold and Manisha Sina both Sina write about um, emancipation. Is that a turning point that people talk about a lot? The, that emancipation, the announcement itself, is uh, as a scene as a turning point in the war. Well, um, many do. I mean, this raises a very important question here, a sort of methodological question for historians. I think in generations past, emancipation, as it was announced January 1st when Lincoln signs the proclamation, would have been regarded as a key turning point. It adds emancipation as one of the North's war aims, which it had not been at the start of the war. But today, I think, and, and certainly Manisha's piece and, Stan, and Stan's piece as well, suggest that historians of emancipation regard emancipation as a process, not an event, and as one that begins almost from the opening moments of the war, as uh, enslaved men and women in the South start to see opportunities, really before the Union Army sees those opportunities, certainly before the Northern Congress does anything to change the status of slavery in, in the United States. Those people on the ground see opportunities for escaping slavery, and so they flee, and so the process itself plays out beginning in, in April of 1861. Um, it certainly reaches um, an important moment in 1863 when Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation because that articulates you know, that, the, that the federal government is now committed permanently to emancipation and will make it an explicit sort of charge of its armies in the field. Um, I think if we pull back the frame still wider and think about American history writ large, emancipation stands clearly as one of the most, probably the signal turning point in American history. That if you, if you, I sort of say to my students, if you are weighing the, the, dur the durability and the duration of slavery as opposed to freedom in the space that becomes North America, if we sort of start the clock ticking at, uh, you know, 1609 or 1619 in, in Virginia with the sale of, of the first batch of slaves, it's 250 years to the Emancipation Proclamation, and then from the Emancipation Proclamation to today is, is only 150 years. So we actually have another century to go before we have full parity. That moment is clearly a decisive turning point in American history. So, but is, I guess then the question is, you know, there's people who expressed, and even in, in the issue itself, there's a, there's a kind of a mention of the reluctance of historians to talk about turning points. And is this one of those reasons for that reluctance that focusing on turning points puts us back into the idea of, if not great men, then great moments. And that erases the kind of small efforts that, you know, kind of social history has worked for decades to bring to the fore. Is that the reason for the reluctance? Um, I think that's a part of it. Um, I mean, you're certainly right. And particularly in the field of Civil War history, you know, the last 25 years or so has been, uh, it's been social history that has really dominated the field and has produced some, you know, just terrific insights into the nature of the conflict. Um, there's also, a, I think, a deeper methodological reluctance, which, which, which stems from the kind of framework of turning points, which is you have to know how things end. And then in a sense, you're kind of working back to identify those points at which the end becomes clear. And so hindsight is central to turning points, and so is uh, sort of inescapably a kind of teleological narrative that uh, the purpose of history is to describe how we get to point X. How do we reach 1865 and Northern Victory? Well, let's turn around and look at the war and try to figure that out. And as I say, I think that's obviously we our, our histories have to account for where we are now. But on the other hand, 
the the emphasis I certainly think among our generation of historians and probably going forward for some time, um, there's a there's a, a a search for what Ed Ayers has called deep contingency, for a recognition that um, that sort of uh, trends and processes in history can change and can change unpredictably. Um, it's not to say that history is entirely random, but it requires us. Uh, sort of telling the story as we move forward in time rather than than stopping and turning around and casting back. Um, and the balance, of course, is to be able to do both of those, that is, use the power of hindsight to understand without prejudging. And, and you know, particularly for students that grow up today in the United States in which we are one nation, it's quite easy for them to imagine that secession would never have worked. And the idea of, of two countries in the space of America um, is sort of preposterous. Um, and so I often, when I start my Civil War class, the very first thing on the first day of class that I do is I ask students to stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance. And they do that usually not quite sure if they're back in grade school or what sort of the purpose is. And then I ask them to – I bring the words up on the screen and I say, you know, why would – because there's no Pledge of Allegiance before the Civil War. It really comes in 1892. But it's clearly a product of the Civil War and of a concern about lingering disloyalty among white Southerners. And so why would we have this notion that everyone has to say every day, at least until you matriculate into middle school, that you're loyal to the flag of the United States? Um, you know, there's a continuing concern that that secession, there's obviously a recognition secession was a real threat. And so that's the beginning, I think, of trying to help students sort of work from the period and recognize that where we are today is not necessarily where we had to end up. Well, I think that's that's fascinating, and I've never thought about doing that. But I think it's the same thing in a religious context, right? If you look at things like the Nicene Creed or other of these things that you say, in there is a history story of various heresies put down. Right. You know, and so the, the Pledge of Allegiance in some ways is it doesn't make any sense that you need to say this except for the existence of a time in which these things were not assured. Right. Right. In which in which, you know, you could have had people being disloyal or not observing the flag. And I think, of course, if secession had been successful in the South, that that the Pacific would certainly have broken away. It's very likely that New England and the Midwest would have separated, you know, and it's entirely feasible to end up with not just four or five, but a dozen or two dozen or more countries in the space of North America. I mean, it's it's larger than continental Europe and there are 45 or so states there um, and recapturing that contingency. I think most historians would agree that that's part of our job now is, is, a lot, is helping students see those things so that, of course, in their own day-to-day -day interactions, when they think about, about the, the sort of shape of, of where the world is trending today, they're also thinking about those things that may be unlikely but perhaps should be happening or, you know, what kinds of decisions can they make to, 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 to you know, improve things or, or shift things. Well, you know, when I was reading this issue and, and hearing you talk about this, uh, this tension between um, wanting to be able to keep contingency alive and yet wanting to be able to set up a narrative, and we also know these things, I was really struck by how the Civil War brings that out. And, and I particularly thought of David Potter's great book in which he starts off saying, you know, I want to write this book as if the outcome of the 1850s is not decided, that in every moment there's this – there's contingency still alive. Right. And yet the book is called The Impending and Crisis, which is – It loads it up in the title. Right. I mean it seems to be that even in a time when someone who's a great historian sets themselves the goal, you know, and I'm not sure he named it. it he 
passed away before it was published, but still that tension between wanting to keep ourselves in this moment of not knowing and yet also knowing and, and, and always thinking back and forward at the same time. I, I thought that really came through in the issue as well and, and what we've been talking about here. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And, and you know, the impending crisis tells it, I mean, you know, the, the, the prelude to disunion of sure. some of Freeling's books, which are, which are fan, I mean, you know, Freeling's books are the closest, you know, sort of challenger to, to, to Potter in terms of that narrative. And that's an even, I mean, it's in some respects even harder to tell the history of the 1850s without somehow ending up at the Civil War. Sure, sure. Um, and, and yet, of course, taken on their own, the 1850s are an enormously complex oh, sure. and, and dynamic period in terms of the you know, immigration history, in terms of technological change, in terms of religious and, and social and cultural kind of ferment. And the people who were living through it, you know, we always have to remind students, they didn't know it was the antebellum decade. Right, right. Uh, you know, I mean, for those of us alive in the 1990s, we weren't thinking of it as a pre-9-11 era. But undoubtedly, 200 years from now, the easiest way to kind of categorize that will be to maybe collapse the distinction between the first Gulf War and the second and have 9-11 as a part of that narrative. And then people living through the 90s must have somehow anticipated that this is where we were going to end up. And, you know, I feel like it's important having sort of lived through one of these pre-war periods, we should be alert to the fact that that's a very loaded term. Yeah, it was in the way that the 1920s disappear, right? I mean, that it becomes, right. particularly in European history, it was this kind of rest period right. in which we're kind of like, we've all kind of rested up from the first big war and we're getting ready for the second. Yeah. And so we call it the interwar period, right? as as though that would have made sense to anybody either. And, and, so, you know, for students, um, I think this can be really challenging because they're trying to just figure out basically, you know, first of all, what's the story? Um, you know, who wins the Civil War and why do they win? And this is obviously part of what we do as students, you know, kind of return to the narrative as you start to complicate not just the story, but how you how it is that you do history. Um, you know, and I would, you know, my, my daughter is in fifth grade and, you know, we don't spend a lot of time talking about contingency. Um <laughs> You know, and she's kind of rabid, uh, actually, you know, which is I'm not forcing it on her, I, I, I'm, I promise. But she, um, you know, sort of really wants to kind of understand where we, you know, sort of why things are the way they are. And um, so that's sort of one story. And then there's a way of kind of telling that from a different angle that begins to highlight a lot more. Right. Well, when the, you know, when these turning points, if we, if we put them out there as kind of a, you know, as a, as a useful, if somewhat you know, dangerous way that you have to be aware of. Are there debates over which turning points are the important ones? Or, or do we tend to just kind of come up with more turning points rather than ever kind of rejecting the ones that we have? Are there debates over turning points um, in the classroom yeah. or among historians? Yeah, I mean, there certainly are debates. And I think, I mean, Gary Gallagher has probably done more than anyone to try to dispute the notion that Gettysburg is a turning point. I mean, he has a famous article whose title now escapes me, but it sort of reflects what he saw as popular sentiment, at least read through the newspapers and through diaries and letters um, among Southerners re reacting to uh, the loss at Gettysburg and then the loss at Vicksburg. And his basic argument is that they're not nearly as demoralized as, as we sort of assume they would be because we know the end of the war has, you know, we know what the outcome of the war is. And I think it's a persuasive argument. The the Vicksburg is clearly the bigger loss in the sense that control of the Mississippi River is absolutely crucial. It cuts the Confederacy in half, 
gives the Union access to move gunboats and supplies up and down the river and then into either the Trans-Mississippi West or just the Western Theater of, of Tennessee in the Confederacy. Gettysburg, you know, was arguably the sort of first serious loss that the um, the first decisive loss that Robert E. Lee's Confederates had experienced. Antietam was kind of a stalemate and he retreated, but Gettysburg is clearly a defeat. And so there are a lot of people that in the Confederacy that regarded as, you know, as a kind of one-off. I, they're not quite, they're more puzzled and surprised than they are demoralized. They certainly don't see the end. Um, and there's a huge amount of fighting and, and bloodshed to be done. So, I mean, I think Gettysburg, uh, when you read carefully, particularly in the Confederacy, the the, the kind of ground level reaction, um, there's a sense that that Vicksburg opens up a problem in which the Union armies will kind of move from the West across to the East, which is ultimately what happens. But that the Eastern theater, which is the important one, the one that Europeans watched most carefully, that one remains as alive as ever. And Lee will move back to Virginia and then, you know, have to be sort of defeated uh, summarily, which is going to be just about impossible, most Confederates regard. So we have added some, certainly um, Lincoln's election and Lincoln's election itself only comes because of, of Sherman's victory uh, at Atlanta and the capture of Mobile Bay, which had happened days before in um, late August, and um, and then the, the late fall victories in the Shenandoah Valley. You know, Lincoln's election, his re-election was really contingent upon a Union military trajectory that convinced people the war was winnable and this was the team to do it. Sure. I mean, the other really important moment, I would say, and the one that, that historians have paid a lot of attention to is the Peninsula Campaign in in June of, of 1862, I mean, it started in April when George McClellan shipped his so- soldiers by steamer down to Fort Monroe at the Peninsula um, and, then, and then began a very slow march up. And his troops move within five miles of Richmond. They can hear the church bells tolling and see the steeples uh, as Richmond begins to get evacuated in late May. And um, they're being led by George McClellan. He's notoriously slow. It's taken him two months to march 60 miles, which in later years would be a kind of three-day march. And they anticipate imminent victory, uh, that is at least the siege of Richmond, which would inevitably lose because the Union has dramatically more kind of materiel to fight the war with and certainly a siege. During the battle, um, his opponent, Joseph Johnston, is hit by an artillery shell and not killed but disabled. And Robert E. Lee is given full command of the Confederate forces. And he reorganizes them and goes on the offensive in a way that unsettles McClellan. And I'm collapsing a complicated uh, sure, sure, sure. trajectory here. But it's clear that there is a marked change in the leadership of the Confederate army. McClellan ends up being pushed back off the peninsula. And so the war continues. If Johnson had not been injured, he undoubtedly would have retreated into Richmond as he later retreated into Atlanta. And siege would have, a siege would have commenced. Lee would never have risen to general of the army. And, and the Union would then have won the war, let's say, in September or October of 1862, before Lincoln issues an Emancipation Proclamation. Sure. And so then, you know, the kind of social and, and political consequences are simply enormous. McClellan, you know, would have been a hero. He's a conservative Democrat. Um, you know, and, and and Lincoln would have been able to reunify the country, which might have been good for Republicans, but without um, solving any of the long-term problems that everyone understood had generated the conflict in the first place. So, um, and most people for a long time had regarded a Confederate victory in the war as an impossibility because, mostly because they didn't win. Right, right? Sure. That sort of reading backwards. So, 
you know, and, and historians will argue about this. And, you know, it was certainly the unluckiest artillery shot of the war. To, <laughs> right. But of course, for those, you know, for, for radicals in the North and for African-Americans, certainly enslaved in the South and interested in the North, uh, it was a very lucky artillery shot because only with a long war did the North find the necessity of turning to emancipation. And so, I mean, this is where students begin to see, oh, I recognize how dynamic this is. You know, one of the other questions is that these turning points come up, and I think you just brought it up, is that one of them, it seems to be looking for contingencies. And, and one of those, I think, that's that's loomed large is, is Europe, is the question of, is Europe going to come in? Right. And is that, and one of my questions is, is, do we go too far, and, and maybe not, in, in looking for contingency, in wanting to see this as a dicey thing? And does that ignore some of the kind of underlying superiority of the North to, to fight a war? I mean, that, in other words, is Europe ever really going to come in? Many people will say, well, if Europe comes in, then the whole thing changes. And then the question is, how close are they? Is it really a kind of a give and take thing? Is it really that dicey? Or were they probably going to stay out? Well, I would argue that it's actually very close. Um, I mean, I mean, most most famously, the British cabinet is is debating um, recognizing the Confederacy in September. I mean, literally days, about a week before Antietam. And they basically have decided we're going to recognize the Confederacy. But we have news reports that Lee Lee's army is moving north. So let's see what the outcome of the next major battle is. And I mean, so reading that, and certainly the British, the the, the, the Gladstone and, and Palmerston seem. I mean, Palmerston is the prime minister. Gladstone is probably the most powerful cabinet member. Both of them uh, are, are supportive of recognizing the Confederacy and are clearly waiting for the right opportunity. So it, that evidence suggests to me that if the Confederate, if Lee had somehow won a dramatic victory at Antietam. It's it's very likely that Britain would have recognized the Confederacy. You know, I don't. The war would not have stopped, right. um, though. And so, 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 you know, perhaps we end up with the same outcome. I mean, you know, Seward has Lincoln Secretary of State William Seward, of course, already prophesied war with Great Britain if they sure, recognize sure. the Confederacy. So I would argue that it, it, it is a, a feasible thing. France certainly wanted to recognize the Confederacy all along and was basically waiting for Great Britain as the stronger power to make a decision first. Um, what this conversation does is allow us to talk about really the global civil war, right, right. which I think is the kind of next big turn methodologically in terms of thinking about the conflict. Um, and even if it's not, um, the question simply of recognition, um, we see the way in which, uh, European publics as opposed to European leaders are invested in the struggle. Um, and so thinking about this, I mean, it's an easy hook into the story to talk about the question of recognition. Um, you know, the Confederates went into the war as, as Brian Shane's book, uh, fragile fabric of the union, I think makes very, very clear. They went into the war assuming that great Britain and France would recognize them because after all, Great Britain and France were building global, you know, colonial enterprises on the backs of textile sales, and 70% of their cotton came from the American South. And so, you know, literally, if they wanted to stay in control of the world, they had to have that cotton. Right. Um, you know, and there's, there's a particular sequence of events. There's a, a cotton stockpile in Europe and, and, and other suppliers ready to come online, Algeria, Egypt, uh, you know, places like that that are colonial um, holdings of Britain and France. But Confederates have have every confidence in the world, and I think it's a kind of justifiable confidence that this is uh, that this chip will 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 play for them. 
Right, right. Well, it's always that that tension. I think as you is that when at the beginning of the war you uh, you add up you know railroad mileage and industry and population, and it seems like this thing is going to be it, there's no doubt in the outcome, and so the outcome somehow seems like playing out of inevitable deep structural you know. Um, advantages. And yet right. then when you look at it and, and we talk about it, really is there are moments where even with those deep structural advantages, there were turns in places where it could have gone in a different direction. And getting students to understand that both of those things may be true, um, I think is one of the challenges. Right, right. They both are. And I mean, I think, you know, I mean, part of it is sort of when does it become, I mean, it's to me, what's important is the question is, when does it become inevitable that the Civil War is a long war? Because if it's a short war, they're evenly enough matched that that sure, uh, there's right. no clear winner. Um, I think you're absolutely right. The North has a five to two manpower advantage. Um, you know, they have a huge advantage in terms of draft animals. The industrial capacity of the North dwarfs the South. There are ten fact. There there is a, basically a factory in the North for every factory worker in the South. And so, if you're fighting a war uh, that's going to last a half a decade or a decade then that kind of thing makes an enormous difference. But if you're fighting a war that's only going to last six weeks or even just six months, the Confederacy has certainly enough industrial capacity, food production capacity to be able to, for it to be essentially an even fight. I mean, this is where wars are particularly kind of slippery uh, objects. And obviously, historians of the Civil War learned a lot by thinking backwards after Vietnam mm-hmm. and wondering how... Um, the American conflict there in which, you know, you know, if not the French, but probably also the French, the Americans, you know, have a dramatic material and, and kind of war power advantage over the Vietnamese. And yet the Vietnamese ultimately, uh, you know, uh, sustain themselves in the conflict. And so um, at that point, the, the historians sort of want to start balancing things like national will and the will to fight and morale against questions of sheer materiel of, you know, number of bombs and, and, and number of soldiers. And, you know, a key question here is the willingness of one side or the other to absorb casualties. The Vietnamese absorbed millions of casualties. Um, and, and not to diminish, uh, the American sacrifices in that war, of course, but the scale is just hopelessly lopsided. And, um, you know, so living through that experience, many historians of the civil war in the 1970s and 80s, began looking at the Confederacy and explaining the outcome not as a result of the North's manpower advantage or, or industrial advantage, but as these um, more esoteric questions of national will, um, you know, much harder to quantify, obviously. But if, if, we, if we jump forward, one more um, kind of turning point is, uh, has always, and it's not a turning point necessarily for the Civil War itself, but it's the decision at the end to stop fighting. And that always seemed to be one of those moments of discussion and debate over, you know, that Lee's decision to send everybody home and the South's decisions not to go in the direction, as we're talking about, of the, of the North Vietnamese and fight a guerrilla war, you know, but to, 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 to stop the conflict. I mean, that's a turning point as well, right? Uh, it is. And I think that's important that we don't typically appreciate that as a turning point. But clearly, I mean, there were a number of people in in Lee's own sort of circle of, of junior officers encouraging him to to, you know, push for a guerrilla war and, and to not formally surrender, but basically send his men home with an order to continue the conflict. And I think one of the things that this reveals is, is, is the dramatic difference between the people fighting the, the Confederacy, the kind of social profile of 
um, Confederates with, say, North Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. A person like Lee is, above all, uh, really a conservative. It's it's a deep irony that he's fighting what really looks like a revolution. Um, but if you're a conservative living in a slave society trying to maintain social order, a guerrilla warfare is is inimical to that. I mean, you really can't sustain any kind of social hierarchy in the face of guerrilla conflict. And um, elites around the Confederacy knew that. And I think by April of 1865, regarded the, the effort to achieve independence a lost cause. So then there's a kind of strategic uh, calculation about the ways in which they would be able to retain social power in a, a reunified you know, United States and, you know, opening the South up to a, a you know, possibly, you know, multi-year kind of community by community uh, guerrilla war ensures that they won't retain that social control. And so I think Lee is clearly thinking about that and, uh, and about what the future of the South should look like. And he wants to make sure not just that white Southerners are in charge of the South, but about uh, but that kind of elite white Southerners are in charge of the South uh, because the guerrilla conflict very easily spins in in the directions of class warfare. And you see, you know, kind of lower class men who who make very significant inroads as leaders in the South, uh, but not at all beholden to the pre-war leadership. Sure. I mean, look at uh, look at the South during the Revolutionary War. You know, right. the but I, and I guess is that then then do we does that make us reconsider some of. Lincoln's conciliatory movements towards the South towards the end of the war, which is often criticized for, you know, that he's basically going to let all the states in and the radicals are giving him a real hard time about not being firmer. But I mean, is, is Lee, you know, Lee and the other Southern leaders' decision here, is it partially influenced by the fact that they realize that Lincoln's not going to hang them? I mean, that, that, that certainly had, maybe it wasn't a concern, but Certainly, looking at this, these kinds of conflicts in other countries, that would yeah, have no, been a concern. Certainly, uh, I, yeah. I think it's absolutely a concern. I mean, there are whole there's a whole raft of the of the top Confederate leadership that leaves the United States immediately, you know, and, and moves to Mexico or or South America. I mean, there are a handful of Confederate officers that wind up advising the Khedive of Egypt on military affairs, and they're you know about as far away from the United States as they can because there's great concern that there will be treason trials and executions, certainly for the high command. Um, I mean, Bill Blair at Penn State has a great book coming out on this soon um, on the question of treason. And this is, you know, in, in I think Bill's telling one of the great turning points that doesn't happen. That is, you know, there were Northerners urging treason trials. And then there is kind of somewhat surprisingly a, a very strong surgence, if that's a word of a kind of enthusiasm for granting amnesty to people. And this comes really in the spring of 1865 among some of the people who had been most vigorous in urging prosecution of the war. So most famously, Henry Ward Beecher, huh. you know, who had been a longtime supporter of a very hard war. Almost as soon as the war is over, Beecher is, is very publicly from, from his pulpit in, in Massachusetts calling for amnesty for, for former officers and a kind of uh, gentle, you know, Christian forgiveness. And so that helps change the tone in the North. And you're right. I think that that there are those uh, elites, white elites who stay. I mean, Jefferson Davis is caught and jailed, but most of them are not subjected to that. So then they're, you know, partly because of how they see that, surprisingly, Lincoln is not prosecuting. And then, and then Andrew Johnson, of course, is much famously even more kind of forgiving that um, they might be able to kind of reconfigure the social landscape in a way that perhaps mitigates some of what 
you know, of the worst of the war in their view, which is the kind of social dislocation that happens as a result of emancipation. You know, I think Bill's book and this notion of treason, you know, highlights turning points not taken, uh, that is moments when you could see the war changing dramatically. I and mean, I think the other crucial one to think about here is the fact that African-Americans in the South, I mean, in, in enslaved African-Americans above all, don't promulgate a kind of violent rebellion in the way that it happened in Haiti, right? And that's what white Southerners had always lived in fear of. Um, and I mean, Thavoli, glimpse work and out of the house of bondage certainly recaptures for us a sense of just how violent those households were. And she has plenty of evidence of, of violence, especially between enslaved women and, and mistresses through the course of the war. But I think, um, what white Southerners anticipated. I mean, they, they famously, you know, after the Emancipation Proclamation charged Lincoln with trying to incite servile insurrection. And that's partly a PR ploy that they're trying to, to, to generate sympathy among the, Euro the European nations watching it. But they also, many of them really expect that despite decades of what they would consider kind of loving treatment, that their slaves are going to reenact Haiti, set fire to plantations, murder whole families. And almost overwhelmingly, that doesn't happen. Uh, enslaved people instead seek their freedom. I mean, they certainly attack slavery, but they do it by by running away. They, very few of them sort of spend time organizing, you know, into paramilitaries. Um, and and obviously, enslaved men join the Union Army through the, the USCT and in that way are able to make war on the South. But it's an organized, regular war, even though white Southerners don't treat black Southern, black soldiers with, with respect. Um, the The anticipation and I think reasonable expectation that the war could have become dramatically more bloody and more violent um, never materializes. And so this is a story that we really don't know at all. We have very little evidence and have done very little investigating the decision by African-Americans strategically to pursue freedom without really seeking vengeance. Right, right. And so uh, when you present these kinds of things, do you tend to, you know, we've, we've had some discussion of part of these, uh, these issues, but you do find that turning points are, are helpful in the classroom. I, I do think they are. I mean, certainly by the time you're instructing students at college, um, they should be able to understand, you know, methodologies in such a way that they see, oh, right, hindsight is a gift, but also a kind of curse. You know, you ask them to kind of put the glasses on and take the glasses off in a sense and, and, and identify these, um, and argue about them, you know? And so part of the challenge is, you know, so one of the assignments that I will sometimes give students in a civil war class is to, uh, pretend that they're a European, uh, journalist in the United States in June of 1863 and to write a kind of general assessment of the course of the war to this point. And if they want to offer a kind of prognosis about what direction they think things are going to go, that's fine. But they can't get to, you know, they have, Gettysburg hasn't happened. So they don't know that. They know that Chancellorsville has happened, which is a union, I mean, a Confederate triumph in May of 1863 in, in central Virginia. And that Lee's troops are now moving north, but where they'll go and what they'll do, no one knows. And so that kind of exercise forces students back into the primary sources um, with a kind of very careful attention to what are civilians saying? What are soldiers saying? How do I take the temper of national will? How do I read the events that have preceded this? Um, it also ensures, you know, as an instructor that I don't get the same essay written 45 times over, um, you know, which is not a bad thing um, when we've got a stack of exams, that what you get is students really thinking 
you know, from evidence forward as opposed to knowing. And I sort of always joke, you know, sort of at some point halfway through, I say to my students, now you'll note that I haven't told you how the class is going to end. You, know, <laughs> you don't know. Um, and so just don't, if you know, don't say, but let's <laughs> assume. Um, and so you can sort of play that. And then obviously you can, you can work, um, you know, for instance, obviously thinking about the question of, of public memory of the war and memory has become a very important subfield of civil war studies and, and thinking about analytically about memories of the war, of course, requires that we know how the war ended and that what it's sort of peaks and valleys were so that we can then evaluate the way in which Americans and other f- people around the world have remembered the war or have ascribed meaning to it. Sure, sure. And, and that so much of that memory actually revolves around these turning points as well. Right. These these contested moments um, and, and people that want to uh, to sort of celebrate the Confederacy. And you find this in strange places. Right. And you find it all across the, the UK today. You know, you can find it in parts of Italy. Um, you know, we were on vacation in Lucca, this small town in central Italy. And, and there's a store with a big Confederate battle flag in the window. Um, which was mostly because the owner happened to be a fan of Dukes of Hazard. Huh. Um, we found out later, but but you know the, there is a kind of cultural memory that right wants to keep alive certain of these things, and so those people in those memories are very attentive to these moments when well the Confederacy could have or should have won, or things you know could have played out differently. So you're right that that's a key part, and and the Gettysburg you know is a famous sort of point of debate. My, my concern with the Gettysburg, of course, is that it ignores the fact that the war continues for another year and a half. And you know, the Overland campaign is arguably the bloodiest six weeks of the, of the battle, if not of, you know, American military experience. And um, so we need to not just kind of pay respect to that, but to think clearly about the way in which people on both sides in the spring of 64 see this as a very um, hard fought struggle that could go either way. Certainly Grant would have been surprised if somebody had told him you know, in mid-May. Well, this is essentially a kind of cleaning up operation. Yeah, sure. You'll win for sure. Right. We just, it's just mop up, mop yeah. up from here on out. You know, right? 60,000 casualties on both sides right. in, in six weeks of fighting is, you know, is just, is inconceivable. And I mean, it's inconceivable today, even though it happened, but certainly from the perspective of the time, very few people could have imagined that, um, particularly after what looked like these, you know, kind of certainties that emerge after Gettysburg and Vicksburg. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you so much for the, the conversation and for uh, the great issue. My, my pleasure. Thanks. I think the, the volume turned out really well, and I certainly hope people enjoy it. Yeah, I think they will. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you.